Welcome to Israel. It's midnight from Jerusalem. Our weekly virtual worship service, and as always, a joint effort between the Congregation of the Word and loveisrael.org. Our theme for this night's study, victory. God is indeed a God that delivers his people from their enemies, and we'll see that as we turn to the book of Esther in a few minutes. The day that the enemy had designated to be a day of defeat turned out to be, and only God can bring such a change. It turned out to be a day of victory, a day of deliverance, and a day of salvation. And God's people in the last days can expect this same type of miraculous victory. For our call to worship, I'm going to invite you to take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Revelation and chapter 7. The book of Revelation, chapter 7. We're just going to look at one verse, verse 10. So again, Revelation chapter 7, verse 10, where it says in the Hebrew language, which means, and they proclaimed with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God, the one who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And this salvation unto our God literally means salvation belongs to God. And he shares it with his covenant people. Now let's turn to another portion within God's word from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 for the Shema. As we testify of our faith in God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three. We read here, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kavod, Machuto Leolam, Ved. Via Hafta et Adonai Elohecha, Bekol Levavcha, Uvakol Napshecha, Uvakol Meodecha. Vehayu Hadvarim, Ha Ele, Asher, Anoki, Mitzvacha, Hayom Al. Leva vecha, veshina netam levanecha, ve debartam bam, be shiftacha, be vetacha, uvlektacha, baderk, uchak becha, ukomecha, uchartam le ot al yadecha, ve hayu le totafot ben anecha, uftaftam al mezazot betecha, uvesherecha. And now let us go before our great God in a time of prayer. O Lord our God, God, we come before you this evening, praising you, thanking you, acknowledging you, that you are God and there is no other. We praise you that you are a God of revelation, that you reveal to us your truth, that you reveal to us your will, and that you give to us your power, the anointing of your spirit, that we might walk victoriously in this world. Father, we know that there is an enemy, and although that enemy, from the perspective of human vision, might seem to have victory, we know that 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 situation is temporary. We know that in the end, 
through your resurrection power that your people will rise up and your people will enter into your kingdom victoriously. We thank you, Father, that we can trust in you and not ever be disappointed. We know that, that our hope is not based upon the physical, but upon your word. So, Father, we praise you for the Lamb who, who sits upon the throne, for our Lord and Savior, Messiah Yeshua, that Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, but who was, who was risen victoriously as a testimony of the victory that will, will be raised up in the last days for your people. Lord God, we, we give you thanks tonight that we can come before you, naming your name, calling upon you and knowing that you hear our prayers and that you move according to the goodness of your grace, according to the perfection of your will. So, Father, we come before you tonight praying for those who are sick. Lord, we ask that you might heal those individuals, that you might touch them and strengthen them and restore them to their health. Lord, we pray as well for, for your comfort, your consolation to be upon those who are downcast, who are discouraged, who feel as though the world is indeed overcoming them. Lord, give them a great spirit of overcoming. Lord, give them the hope that's only found in you and in your prophetic truth. Father God, we, we exalt you this evening. We know that you are God and there is no other. So, Lord, we, we praise you, we adore you, we worship you, we give you thanks. We, we, we lift up your holy name, the name by which all men must come to salvation through, the name of Yeshua. Lord God, we pray that you might move in our midst tonight, that we might hear your truth through your scripture, that you would, would set us apart for this time, that we might know better your purposes and your plans. Lord, we pray for a spirit of submissiveness to be upon us, a spirit of obedience, a spirit that desires to honor you as we humble ourselves. So, Father, we dedicate this time to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Victory is a great thing. Knowing God's deliverance is a sense of encouragement because we know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And no matter how great the enemy might be, no matter how bad it might look with human eyes, we know that God's provision of salvation ultimately will be ours. Our hope is not in a physical deliverance, but a deliverance for the soul, for that spirit of man, whereby we will overcome the plots, the strategy, the attacks of the enemy, and we will enter into a kingdom, the kingdom of God victoriously. Well, take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Esther and chapter 9, the book of Esther and chapter 9. Now, we have seen that Queen Esther has went and petitioned the king that there might be an edict that goes forth in contradiction to the one of Haman, that this day would be a day of deliverance and not of despair. It would be a day of overcoming and not being 
overcome by the enemy. Esther realizes that with God, victory is a reality. A reality for those who are in this covenantal relationship with God. So let's begin. We're going to see how God indeed brings a change, his change to his people. We read in verse 1 of chapter 9, and in the 12th month, it is the month of Adar. Now, over and over, we see that the 12th month is emphasized. As I said, the number 12 relates to the people of God, and in this case, the 12 tribes of Israel. That God is moving in their behalf for one reason, and that is because of a covenant commitment. We cannot overestimate. We cannot speak too boldly about the benefits of being in a covenantal relationship with God. And this great covenant that we should want to be part of is a new covenant. New relates to the kingdom, a kingdom covenant with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What we're seeing in this ninth chapter is a paradigm. It is a pattern. It is an example of what God's new covenant people can expect in the last days. And be aware of something ultimately. It is only going to be those that are in that new covenant relationship that are going to experience deliverance. In fact, Messiah is returning a second time. And here again, I'm not speaking about the rapture, the blessed hope, but when Messiah comes back to earth the second time, at the end of this pouring out of the wrath of the Lamb, he's doing so for three primary reasons. First, to deliver Israel. Secondly, to defeat the enemies of Israel. And thirdly, to establish his kingdom. And we, the body of believers, those who have entered into that new covenant, we are going to be coming with him for those purposes. And at that time, Messiah is going to manifest himself and only to that remnant of Israel that believes in Messiah, that comes to faith when they see him. This one who has been pierced, this one who has died, but now risen and returned, they will come to faith and enter into as well this new covenant. And what we're reading parallels. It is prophetic to give us a foretaste of what that deliverance is going to look like. So we read in verse verse 1 of chapter 9, And in the twelfth month, it is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of it, meaning on the thirteenth day of it, meaning the month of Adar, we see something. We see that when the word of the king and his law arrived, meaning it came into being when that time arrived, for it to be executed, for it to be done, what to be done? This word of the king. What word? Well, both. For those who sided with Haman, who wanted to destroy the people that day, that edict of the king arrived. But there was that second one. And that is the edict 
that, that Esther and Mordecai had written down for the Jewish people to defend themselves and stand for their life against their enemies. So both of these edicts are coming about. There is a decision to be made. Whose side are you going to be on? The side of Haman, which is a foretaste of the side of the Antichrist or the side of the Jewish people, which is the side of Mordecai, which is a paradigm for the real Messiah. So we see here when it came time for the edict to be executed on, on that day where the enemies of the Jews, they had hoped to conquer, to control, to rule over them, meaning over the Jewish people, we see a very important word, ve nafok. Nafok is, it was overturned, meaning this rule of law that Haman had put into power, it was going to be overturned. And that sense of overturning in this context means it was going to be destroyed. It was going to be removed from its power. It was going to be brought to nothingness. And that is what God is going to do with the Antichrist's purposes, his desires, his attempts. It is going to come to nothing. The people of God, through the victory of God, are going to know deliverance. So we read in verse 1, when it came time for this decree to be executed, we see that it was overturned. And that which was to be Haman's glorious hour, it says here, the Jews ruled over. It's a word of controlling their enemies. So they, the Jews, they controlled, ruled over their enemies. Now, there's a very important purpose that God gives us, the language that he does in this verse. And that is enemies. The enemies are going to be conquered. They are going to be controlled. They are going to be ruled over by the people of God. And that's why we see in Revelation chapter 20, twice, in verse 4 and verse 6, where it speaks about true believers are going to be ruling and reigning over this kingdom, over the world. And this simply foreshadows that promise event that God has stated. Look now to verse 2. How did this come about? Well, we read in verse 2. And the Jews were gathered in their cities in all the provenances of the king Ahasuerus to stretch forth their hand against those who were seeking their evil. Now, what does the scripture reveal? Well, in that day, there were those that were seeking the evil of the Jewish people, meaning they did not want God's will for the Jewish people. Now, how should we understand that? Very simply, God's will for the Jewish people is to come to faith in the will of God, the purposes of God, and of course, the Savior. 
And the enemies are going to be against this. Why? Because they know when that happens that the kingdom of God is going to be established. And the enemy, and now I'm speaking about Satan, he doesn't want that. He does not want the establishment of the kingdom of God. He does not want those things to become a reality. He is working against the purpose of God, and therefore he's against the Jewish people. He understands that when that spiritual change comes that God has promised, when it comes, it is to his defeat. So he is against it. And therefore, we're going to see this same thing being played out in the last days. Look again at verse 2. And the Jews in their cities, they were gathered together in every providence of the king Ahasuerus to stretch forth their hand against those that were seeking their evil, those who were in opposition of the purposes of God. And a man did not stand before them, meaning this. And one was not successful in their objective to stand against the Jewish people. And we also see four, their fear fell upon all the people. Now, this is indeed the word pachad, which is fear. When we see this word being used here, it has nothing to do with the fear of the Lord, giving God priority. What it is, is a fear in the same way that we saw that fall upon the people of Jericho that paralyzed them. This is what's going to happen. It doesn't talk about a change in the people's desire, the the enemy's desire, but it calls us to, to be mindful of that God is going to paralyze them with fear, and they're not going to be able to move and to carry out their objectives. Verse 3, and all the officials, and these would be high officials of the provinces, also the satraps, these high rulers as well, the governors, that were, were the doers of the work which the king the king had had uh, put into force earlier. It says these were the ones, these leaders were the ones who lifted up the Jewish people, meaning they assisted, they helped them. Why? Once more, because the fear of Mordecai had fallen upon them. Mordecai is a typology for the real Messiah. So in this last day, there's going to be those who are in authority that are going to come to a realization that, that God's plan is for the Jewish people, to deliver them, to save them, to bring them to a spiritual reality that focuses in on the Savior, Messiah Yeshua. So there's going to be a remnant that assists, a remnant that is going to see the mightiness of God, the sovereignty of God, and that they are going to, at that time, 
be changed. Now, this simply parallels what we see prophetically, and that is this. When the nations see, and here again, this is not everyone among the nations. It is likewise a remnant. I believe a small remnant. They're going to see God at work in sanctifying Israel, being faithful to his covenant promises. They're going to perceive that this small nation is going to have victory over all the nations of the world. And they're going to perceive this and they're going to repent and they're going to change sides. And this is what it's talking about here. And it's all because, and what's significant is this change in, in language where it speaks in the end of the verse, ki nafal pachad Mordechai alehim, for the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Now, what they're going to see is the power, the authority of Messiah. In his second coming, and in the same way, and this just speaks about God's, not a respecter of persons. What he offers, one, he offers to all. One God moves through Messiah in the last days to bring victory. The Jewish people, a remnant of them, are going to acknowledge Yeshua. They're going to be moved and changed, transformed by the faithfulness of God. And there's going to be also Gentiles that are going to be moved by Messiah's faithfulness to carry out God's covenant obligations to Israel. And when they see the, the authority of Messiah, the power of Messiah, they're going to have fear unto him, and they're going to be changed. Verse, verse 4. For great is Mordecai in the house of the king. Now, it's interesting because this expression, in the house of the king, it just doesn't mean in that, that palace. But what it's a reference to is the empire that Mordecai becomes great. He's acknowledged as great within the empire, meaning that he is going to take a position of prominence. And that's exactly what we can expect with Yeshua, that the Messiah is going to become the ruler, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's going to be acknowledged. And this is a paradigm that we see in verse 4. For great is Mordecai in the house of the king, and his, and this would be reputation, his, his, what the people heard concerning him, the report of him, but we can say his reputation went throughout all the providences. For the man Mordecai went, he goes, and it says here, and is great. Now, literally, it's a word holek. He walks. He goes forth, and his greatness is beheld. It is seen. This parallels Messiah coming forth in that last day and people acknowledging his greatness, his authority. Another thing we need to point out 
about the text. When we look at it in the original language, it's in the present tense. As I've shared with you in many different messages, when the present tense appears here again, many of the Christian scholars, they will call it a participle. I say all the time. It doesn't matter the grammatical term that you use. What is important is that you recognize it and you understand the significance of that construction. It always turns the statement into that being emphatic, that being emphasized. So we see that Mordecai is going to go forth. He is going to move and as he moves, meaning as he carries out his work, the greatness, his greatness is going to be beheld. It is going to become evident to all. And this just simply parallels what's going to happen with Messiah. As he continues his work, as he goes forth in the last days and carries out the work of his second coming, his reputation, his name, his, his report, is going to grow in prominence and in greatness. Verse 5. Now, verse 5 speaks about judgment. God judging the enemies. And here we see that the Jewish people, they did something. Now, some Bibles, in fact, I believe the New American Standard. And the more that I study the New American Standard, meaning this, the more I come across how it translates the Hebrew, I find more and more problems with it. That they take great liberties because the word here is la'kot, which means to give a blow, to strike. It's usually a death blow. And here in the New American Standard, it simply says, and the Jews defeated. But literally what's emphasized here is the blow, the strike, the, the heading of the Jewish people and all their enemies. Yes, they defeated them, but what's emphasized is the, the blow, the striking that, that came forth from the Jewish people against all their enemies, and it was the strike of the sword. So we see this word, the same word, two different constructions grammatically, but same word for hitting, striking, making a blow upon someone like a death blow. And it says the Jews struck all their enemies with the striking of the sword, and it was a slaughter and a, a destruction. So the people were slaughtered, they were destroyed. And we see that they did this. They were doing it against their enemies according to their desire, which was to destroy the enemy. So they did, meaning the Jewish people did this against their enemies according to their desire. Now, there's something that's going to be emphasized in the next few verses. And that is, once more, the judgment of the house of Haman. Why is that important? Because we see the next generation, his sons, being mentioned. And we find here that, keep reading, verse 6, 
and in Shushan, the capital. Now, if your Bible says the citadel, this is the wrong term. This is the Hebrew word ha-bira, the capital. It's used for the capital of any empire, any country and such, the capital. If it was the citadel, which is an entirely different thought, it would be the Hebrew word mitsuda. So it's not capital, or excuse me, it's not, not citadel. It's not, as some say, the palace, which would be the Hebrew word armon, but rather it is the capital in the capital city, Shushan. Once more, in Shushan, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Now, 500 should be thought of as 50, which is the number of jubilee, of freedom, of liberty. 50 times 10, 10 is the number four in its entirety, a fullness, a completion. So we see that there was going to be brought about this full, complete liberty, deliverance in its entirety through this victory. So once more, in Shushan, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And we're going to see among them, or in addition to them, depending upon how you understand this next word, it speaks about the 10 sons of Haman. We have the first son, Parshandata, Daphon, Aspata, Porata, Adalia, Aridata, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and the last one, Yizata. These ten sons of Haman. It says in verse 10, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Madata, the enemy of the Jewish people, they were killed. So judgment. And this, this judgment upon his offspring shows that there's not going to be any future for Haman. There's no continuation. Now, notice we see here this term regard to Haman, Ben Hamdata. Now, this should cause us to think about something else. And that is, during the days of King Shaul, he did not fully punish the, the king of the enemy. And because of that, he was able to have a child in the time between Shaul, when Shaul spared him, and before Samuel ended his life, he was able to father a child. And it's this, this heritage of, of this evil Agite, we see that came about the Amakites. And Alem and Amalek, who is the, the enemy of the Jewish people. What we see here, and I want to go to a scripture that puts this in the proper perspective. Look, if you would, to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and chapter 25, the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 25, 
we see something of great significance in this passage. Look, if you would, to Deuteronomy 25 and verse 17. Now, this is known as a special portion of Scripture called Zahor. Why Zahor, that word? It means to remember something, a commandment to remember. And I want to read just the last few verses where it says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way that you came out from Egypt. When you were struck on the way at the rear, at your rear, all the ones who were were weak at your end, and those who were tired and exhausted, and he did not fear God, meaning Amalek, he didn't fear God, he went after those who were straggling at the end, at the rear of the, the ones coming out of Egypt. He knew he wasn't going to have victory, but nevertheless, he attacked. And we read in verse 19, and it shall come about when the Lord gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance for a possession. It says here, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek underneath the heavens. It says, do not forget. Now, this is prophetic. It speaks about a future time when the offspring of Amalek, and the offspring of Amalek is related to the family of Haman. And we see here how, at that time, that generation was was exterminated. So there was no future. Well, what we know is this. There's going to be a spiritual Amalek in the last days. They are going to side to be loyal with the Antichrist. And once more, this prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 25 is to tell us not to forget, to carry out, don't be like Shaul, who neglected to kill the king of the enemy, to spare him. Don't have mercy. Don't forget what God says, and what we're reading now about the judgment, the the destruction of the house of Haman, it simply is a paradigm for what's going to happen in the last days. Look at the end of verse 10 back in Esther chapter 9, the end of verse 10. We see that none of this was done for for a, a material reason, a physical purpose. Why do I say that? Well, look at the end of verse 10 where it says, Uva lo shachu et yadam, which means, and against the plunder, meaning the spoils of victory, all the material possessions, it says, they did not stretch forth their hand, meaning they did not want to touch anything that belonged to the family, the household, the estate of those that were against the Jewish people. They did not do this for a a financial gain or a profit. This had nothing to do with the physical, but rather it had only to do with the spiritual. Verse 11. Now, verse 11 begins with a statement. 
beyom hahu. My hope is by now, when you hear that Hebrew expression, beyom hahu, you know it means on that day. And that term replies or, or relates to judgment. And therefore, all of this has a context of judgment day. It teaches us about that ultimate judgment day at the end of, of the final seven years, Daniel's 70th week, it says, verse 11. On that day, the number of the ones who were killed in Shushan, the capital, came before the king. There is a report of the destruction of the enemy before the king. Now, oftentimes, a report to the king was for the purpose of honoring him, saying, your majesty, your will has been carried out. And that's what this passage is speaking of. Look again at verse 11. On that day, the number of the ones killed in Shushan, the capital, came before the king. Verse 12. And the king said to Esther, the queen, in Shushan, the capital, the Jews have killed and caused the destruction of 500 men. And, and this is where we should see, and in addition to these 500, also the 10 sons of Haman. Again, it's emphasized the destruction of the heritage of Haman. And this parallels the destruction of those who were, were with the Antichrist. So once more, verse, verse 12, and the king said to Esther, the queen, in Shushan, the capital, the Jews killed and caused the destruction of 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman. And in the rest of the providence of the king, what was done? Now, I want to pause for a moment because here, there's only a focus up until this time in the text on Shushan, the capital. And many of the rabbinical scholars see that Shushan parallels Jerusalem, meaning this, there's going to be victory in Jerusalem. And that victory is what's emphasized. As Jerusalem goes, so does the rest of creation. It is foundational for the purposes of God. The gospel came first to Jerusalem and then it went throughout the world. Well, this deliverance, this victory of the Jewish people is going to happen in the capital and then spread out throughout the world. And it's interesting how the structure of this sentence is. Look again. It says at the end, may assume what has been done in the rest of the providences of the king. And then we see a familiar statement. Once more, the king, Ahasuerus, he turns to his queen, Hadassah or Esther, and he says, what is your petition? and it will be given to you. What is your request? And, and whatever it is, anymore, it shall be done. So the king is saying, 
What happens in Shusha? What more needs to be done? And the context is throughout the rest of the empire, throughout the rest of God's creation. Verse 13. And Esther said, if concerning the king, it's good. This is to tell us she is concerned about the will of the king in the sense, what is good for the king? What is going to be the best outcome for his empire? And it says here, she speaks, look again at verse 13, Esther spoke, if concerning the king it's good, allow it to be given also tomorrow to the Jews, which are in Shushan, to do according to the law of today. Now, what I see here is this this concept of a doubling. We all know the concept of a double blessing, a double portion of blessing. And this double portion is for the fullest outcome, to reach the desired amount that God wants to provide. Same thing here. This is a judgment that is going to to have an ongoing outcome. So she says her request and her petition is, allow it to be given also tomorrow for the Jews in Shushan to do according to the law of today. And for the 10 sons of Haman to be hung upon the tree. Now, they were killed. Why hang them upon the tree? What did we learn? Shame. There is going to be ongoing shame, ongoing punishment. This is what the scripture is telling us. Also tomorrow, it doesn't end with one day, but another. There's going to be another dispensation, another time epoch in order for the enemy to suffer. And this just parallels this ongoing punishment that's going to happen to those who did not have a covenantal relationship with God. Those who did not follow the word of God, but were submissive to the deceit, the falsehood of the Antichrist. Here, loyal to Haman. So once more, allow the ten sons of Haman to be hung upon the tree. Verse 14, our last verse, word says, And the king said, Allow it to be done thusly. And the law was was set forth in Shushan. And the ten sons of Haman, they were hung. So we see that there is an agreement. Now what's so important is this. The king is agreeing with Esther. She's taking the prominent role. And why is that important? Well, as I've said so, so often, whenever we see a woman being exalted in the text, being emphasized in the word of God, what should come into our mind? What should come into our mind is redemption. 
All that's happening here is God through redemption, putting things in order. And this is the last concept principle that I want to share with you. Redemption begins to bring change. And that change is always about establishing the order of God in a given situation. Now let's make this practical. And that's this. If you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, through faith in Messiah, because you've accepted the gospel, understand that although Yeshua, he's called Mashiach, the the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, although he's called Savior, Lord, all of these are wonderful, accurate terms for Yeshua. For the Messiah. But I want us to focus before we wrap up tonight on the fact that he's also the Redeemer, the Redeemer, the one and only. And the implication of that is this when you experience redemption, his redemption, the redemption of God in your life through the work of Messiah, his death, the shedding of his blood, the outcome of that is not just salvation, not just forgiveness of your sins. Now, these are two huge things. Forgiveness of of sin, eternal forgiveness. Salvation, eternal victory, that we're going to know the deliverance of God for eternity. These are huge, but there's another aspect, and that is through Messiah's redeeming work. God's order is going to begin to be manifested in our life. And that is where faith manifests itself in the life of the believer. Now, there is, and biblically we know this, in order to experience redemption, you have to have faith. Now, faith has two manifestations. First of all, it's by faith that one is saved. This faith is believing. This faith is just receiving the grace of God, affirming your your acceptance in the work of Messiah. So that faith is not of works. It's simply saying yes to God's free gift. That's the first place, first aspect of faith. But in the same way that grace has more than just one outcome in a person's life, so does faith. Faith is going to begin with salvation, but then it's going to lead to faithfulness. And faithfulness is related to truth, meaning this. By faith, I am saved, but that faith is going to mature. It is going to work in my life in order that the truth of God becomes the description. My life is going to be brought under the truth of God. And through that, the will of God is going to be fulfilled. Faith, it is simply accepting, but that faith is going to mature into obedience. And that obedience is going to manifest God's will in your life. And this is what the scripture's telling us.
Redemption is going to put things into order, a godly order in this world and in the individual believer. This is what true maturity, spiritual maturity is about. Walking, living, behaving in this world according to God's order. And it's only when we're in God's order, let me say that a different way, it's only when we are in his will are we going to know that joy, that contentment, that true peace. Only there is where the highest form of worship of God is, is demonstrated, is experienced. Because in his will is intimacy with him. It's that experience of God's presence in our life. And that's why it's so important that we emphasize, yes, we are not saved by obedience, but having been saved freely by the grace of God, experiencing God's mercy, his forgiveness freely, not of works, not of any deeds, but having experienced that, that salvation experience is going to bring about a change. That's that regeneration that is going to manifest itself, document itself in the life of the believer, the one who has been saved by grace freely, a gift. But it will manifest itself in a commitment to obey the truth of God. That is that final outcome of faith in the life of the disciple of Yeshua. Well, I'll close with that until next week. And we continue on in this ninth chapter of Esther. Until then, may God bless you. Shalom from Israel.